wash your hands or get hand sanitizer. Even if you have hand sanitizer, when you get to a sink, wash your hands anyway. But that's the other thing. I think a lot of people rely a little too much on hand sanitizer. I always use an example uh, when I talk to children. I say, if you have some feces on your hands and you put hand sanitizer on your hands and rub it all around your hands, you still have feces on your hands. So just wash your hands. What up, what up, what up? This is Three Brothers No Sense. I'm Tavares Ferguson, and we're bringing to you a special episode of Three Brothers No Sense. We're bringing a special brother for the next few weeks, Brandon Davis. He's going to talk to you guys about COVID-19 on an educated tip. Brandon, take it away. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Uh, welcome to this special uh, edition podcast. Uh, my name is Dr. Brandon Davis. I'm a assistant professor of public affairs at the University of Kansas. And we're going to have four episodes about the coronavirus that are specifically dealing with issues in the African-American community. Uh, this episode in particular is going to be concerned with health and all specifically public health. Uh, the next one will be issued uh, with uh, psychology, um, not only personal psychology, but also social psychology. How is this going to change our world? Uh, the next reveal in economics, what's up with the stimulus packages? And we also will talk with real business owners, black business owners, to see how it's affecting them in their everyday lives. And the last one will be a political roundtable. We'll talk about uh, the, the press briefings, all the political junkie stuff that you like to talk about. Uh, but first and foremost, this first panel, we have two really heavy hitters on here. We're punching above our weight. Uh, the first person on this podcast is Dr. Brandon Obunu, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at Brown University. Uh, he's also in the Center for Computational Molecular uh, Biology. His research focuses on epidemics, genetics, evolution, and disease. We also have Asia Dickerson, who is assistant professor of epidemiology and Bloomberg Professor of American Health at John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. She was a postdoc fellow at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Her research focuses on environmental risk factors, the influence of health disparities and risk assessment and service provision, and environmental justice issues in undeserved communities. So thank you both for joining me. Uh, on, the, on this podcast to talk about these issues as it relates to African-Americans. Um, I would just like to first start off uh, with asking just a simple question. What is the coronavirus? So I guess I, I put this to Brandon as an evolutionary biologist because we have a lot of misinformation about, there's a lot of misinformation out still today about what it is and like compared to influenza and uh, compared to other coronaviruses. So if you could just give us just like a your understanding as a biologist, evolutionary biologist, genetics, what is it? <clears throat> Great. Uh, thank you for having me. 
I'm really privileged to be here and, and, and talk to you all uh, in these perilous times. Um, what you refer to as the coronavirus is oftentimes we, we use that language to refer to the, the disease that we are dealing with now, the source of the global pandemic. Uh, SARS-CoV-2 is the specific kind of a virus we're talking about. But coronaviruses are a large family of viruses that contain uh, many, many, many different variants that are most known by Homo sapiens because of uh, classes of uh, diseases uh, that they cause. Of course, SARS-CoV-1 is the cause of the pandemic from the early 2000s. Uh, there's MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. There's a variant that causes that. And of course, various kind of versions of coronavirus are responsible for the common cold in Homo sapiens. And so it's a large family of viruses that causes a wide number of diseases, some of them extremely minor. And as we see now, some of them uh, quite major. And that's what it is. Now, we think our, the current understanding is that this is a that certain variants circulate in uh, various animals in the wild, uh, the ones that circulate in rodents for example, the, the, or mostly cause the common cold. The ones that are causing more the, 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 the more severe respiratory diseases, we think uh, their kind of natural reservoir uh, is most likely bats, but there might be an intermediate reservoir between bats and, and Homo sapiens. So uh, that's what it is and in terms of how it actually gets into human beings. Well, it's because human beings have this continual encroachment into natural habitats that kind of creates this uh, this environment where you have these leaps into species. We call that zoonosis, when a, when, a, when a disease jumps from one species into another. And just by chance, it has the ability to infect Homo sapiens and get transmitted from person to person uh, in this case. Okay, thank you. So, okay, so that's what, that's what it is. So, uh, Aisha, I'll ask you, how, how did something like this become a pandemic? Uh, if I had to blame one specific incident, it's just air travel. The fact that people can travel so easily is what really pushes this pandemic to spread so quickly. The other issue is that uh, unlike flu and just the common cold, coronavirus is much more contagious. Whereas with the flu, you might infect one person within the day. With coronavirus, you probably infect about... It's highly contagious, primarily through droplets. So when you sneeze and when you cough, but it's also contagious uh, through stool. So feces, if you have some diarrhea, you can spread it that way as well. And because uh, there's so many different ways they can spread uh, and live on surfaces for days, uh, potentially weeks, then uh, that's that's part of the reason why it's spreading so quickly. Oh, great. So, I mean, another question I have, what about some of like, cause what really wanted me to drove me to do this podcast is a lot of the myths about the virus. And so just addressing some of the myths, I know uh, Van Jones was on CNN all the time. He was on CNN saying that his own cousin said that he believed that black people had antibodies from this and couldn't get it. Right. Uh, I guess he thinks that black people have like sickle cell Corona where they can't get, you know, Corona or something like that. Or, and then there's other myths. I saw someone sent me something on Facebook with this ridiculous person saying that if you drink hot liquid or if you do other ridiculous things that prevent you from getting coronavirus or something. So if you, if you just, if either one of you could speak to, you know, a lot of these myths that are circulating uh, because, you know, giving misinformation in this context is, is literally a life or death game. Well, um, 
So what what I would say is, I think number one, I think you know when people are lost and confused and don't have a direction and they're not getting clear information, in particular from the federal government in our case, um, they're going to kind of search for these kind of you know uh, crackpot kind of uh, explanations and solutions for things. So in some ways, I understand why people are searching for answers because they're not receiving them. But I think what's fascinating about the Van Jones. Uh, story is that it's how the misinformation kind of changes and in some ways starts in one end of the spectrum and goes into the other. So, for example, in the beginning of the epidemic, when it was early in the early pandemic phase, when we were when we really only had a Chinese and a uh, European uh, kind of phases of the the story. Yeah, that's where those stories about how black people can't get it because we weren't really seeing any black people who could get the disease, as you know, and we almost certainly go here. Uh, from the recent data, right, in Milwaukee and New Orleans and Illinois and in and, and, and various places where African-Americans are a disproportionate number of infections. Now I'm hearing the opposite conspiracy theories, right? I'm hearing that that, that there's something specific about the virus to infect right, the black community. So really what you mean is that falsehoods and kind of conspiracy theories just kind of adapt and change and become whatever the latest thing that uh, fits the narrative is, unfortunately. Um so on, on, none of those things are true at all. Um, there's no evidence whatsoever that there's any kind of predisposition in any particular ethnic group of any kind. I mean, certainly there, you know, different people carry and clear diseases at different rates, and that you know that might differ between me and you, Brandon, for example. But there's no ethnic signature for that kind of thing, um, and so all of that is just made up and is an attempt for us to reconcile what our reality is. Yeah, it just it seems like people are still getting a lot of false information, primarily from social media. Like when you think about drinking hot drinks, yeah, that might help you if you have some congestion. But with something as severe as what you would experience with coronavirus, hot tea might give you some temporary relief, but it's definitely not going to cure or keep you from getting coronavirus. I know there was a, a study that came out a few weeks ago that suggested, at least in the Chinese population, that those uh, with the O-type blood may have been less likely to get an infection. And because that's a common type in African-Americans, I know that people thought, okay, well, if you have O-blood, then you're fine. You won't get coronavirus. But um, as Brandon mentioned earlier, it's definitely, there's a higher rate in African-Americans. So when you think about the fact that Illinois only has 15% a 15% Black population, but 28% of the coronavirus cases in that state have been African-Americans. And then 43% of the people who have died from coronavirus were African-American. It's obvious, of of course, now that African-Americans can easily get coronavirus. And then that's confounded by the fact that the symptoms themselves are more severe and people who have co-occurring conditions that are already a greater incidence and prevalence in the African-American community like diabetes and cardiovascular disease, hypertension, where somebody else might be asymptomatic, African-Americans would experience the symptoms of coronavirus more heavily, especially if they have something like asthma. Now, another suggestion I'm thinking for the reason why people say Black people can't get coronavirus is that a lot of these states are not reporting the uh, the ethnic or race distribution of the coronavirus cases at the moment. Some of them are, but uh, but most of them are not. And we know just 
in the black community, it's hard to get doctors to listen to you. So there have been plenty of black people who have gone to hospitals to try to get tested and weren't able to get tested either because they didn't have insurance or um, because of this pain response uh, type of thing that happens with doctors. So even in, I'll give an example of, a, of childbirth. If a woman, a black woman who is giving birth to a child says she's having issues, the doctors say, oh, you'll be fine, go home, you'll be okay, which is why there's a higher mortality rate in black women. The same thing can be said for coronavirus. You come in, you say, you know, I'm having trouble breathing. And the doctors go, okay, well, go home. And if you get a fever, then come back. And then you come back with the fever and they say, okay, well, go home. And if you pass out, then come back. And that's what's been happening um, with, with Black patients coming into hospitals here recently. Mm, that's fascinating. So, yeah, so I, I would just to, just to kick off of that, uh, there's an NPR article out that said that 89% of those that have been hospitalized have had underlying health conditions. And even with uh, a third of the hospitalizations being African-Americans, Louisiana has some great data on those um, underlying conditions. And so uh, 60% is hypertension, and that's um, is high blood pressure. Is that is that correct? Yes, yes, that's right. High blood pressure. And then you have uh, the next one is diabetes. Uh, and then we have uh, chronic kidney disease. So what is chronic kidney disease? Uh, well, it's basically where the kidneys are not filtering um, food or liquid the way that they should. So, Would that be somebody on dialysis? Could you have yeah. chronic kidney disease and not need dialysis? Uh, well, you dialysis is, is, um, is common, but it's not always necessary. But yes, a lot of people with chronic kidney disease uh, do have to uh, be on dialysis. So, yeah. Okay. And then the, 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 the next one, 23% is cardiac disease. So I'm guessing that's just, what is, what is that specifically? Um, that's a variety of things. So cardiac disease could include um, congestive heart failure. It could be clogged arteries, um, a previous stroke. All of that is considered a cardiac disease. So with, the, with, those, with those top four, hypertension, diabetes, kidney disease, cardiac disease, are, the, are those four also the four main chronic diseases we see in African-American communities as a public health uh, profession? Absolutely. Yes. So especially when you think about the South, you know, people call the South the Black Belt for a reason, not just because they have fertile soil, but because there are a lot of Black people there. Uh, in addition to that, those those Black people have a lot of, uh, I'll say, dietary habits common to people in the South that lead to increased incidence and prevalence of all four of the diseases that you mentioned earlier. Some people call it the sweet tea built and the consumption of sugary beverages can often lead to things like kidney disease in mm -hmm. itself. So yeah, all of those things are more common in the black community as a whole, but more so in the uh, Southern black community. Mm -hmm. So, Brandon, as, a, as an evolutionary biologist, would you could could you say these things because they're more prevalent in African American fusion, African American populations, especially in that area, that is it is an evolutionary factor to that, or is there is there a biological reason for that, or would that be uh, uh, another explanation? Oh no, I mean I, I think that um, I think that the disparities that we talked about, or that we we just mentioned. Um, 
with regards to the various kind of chronic illnesses are a product of a, you know, of multifactorial and largely a long kind of set of historical and right and structural forces that have created a society where people live this way. I think the virus doesn't see any of these things specifically. It just kind of infects um, and, it, and it, it binds the cells and infects. I think because of the, the the pathophysiology of the virus in terms of the way it works, it just ends up killing people right who have previous lung damage or who are or or have a disease that are prone to a hyperinflammatory response of some kind. And there's a bunch of reasons why these preconditions uh, affect uh, or are associated with kind of higher mortality rate. Uh, but I don't I don't it's not as if the virus kind of evolves specifically to infect uh, those people. It just it just replicates and it ends up causing these really, really bad diseases uh, that are fatal in some people. In fact, by by some measure, it's actually in the virus's benefit to not kill a person. Right. If you actually think about it from that perspective, it, mm-hmm. if it actually if it infects and it allows you to get up and walk around, this is why the common cold is such a very such a successful virus, because it causes very, very minor symptoms. Um, so from the virus's perspective, um, no, that's not the virus's kind of intent. It's not the virus's benefit. It didn't evolve to kill in this very particular way. It's just binding the cells and replicating and try to get out and reach a new host. Uh, that's really all. That's 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 what the biology of the virus uh, does. So I guess uh, Aisha, back to you. These 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 over over representation in hypertension, diabetes, kidney disease, and cardiac disease these are these are essentially social problems and if they're social problems and problems that have been foreseen that we know that have there have been health disparities in minority communities especially african-american communities like when i see uh the, the 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 press briefings with fauci and now that they just brought out recently that this is a problem um the first thing i think about is you as an epidemiologist, as the head epidemiologist, you had to know that this was going to be a problem. And if you're the person that studies pandemics and if pandemics kill people with underlying conditions, wouldn't addressing underlying conditions be in the national interest? Would it, would it not be not only like a public health issue, even a what we can call it a national security issue to protect people in the nation that have these underlying conditions? Well, unfortunately, uh, when you think about public health in the United States, we've known that a pandemic was coming for several years now. There have been, at least in the public health community, we've we've just kind of been sitting here waiting to see what would it be. Um, And it just happened to be coronavirus. So um, the government should have been preparing for this several years ago, actually, I believe the government tried to prepare for it a few years ago, but the thing with politics is that every time a new administration comes in, they rotate people in and out. And so it's quite possible that they rotated out the team that was originally put together to tackle potential pandemics. Now, as far as underlying conditions, when you think about the four that you mentioned earlier, as we said previously, it's more common in the African-American community. And it's no new idea that, hey, Black people are disparate. They're experiencing all of these these co-occurring conditions. It's just a matter of convincing people that it's important enough to care about. So as an epidemiologist, 
um, we try to report the information and we say, hey, look, these these conditions mm-hmm. are disproportionately impacting the African-American community. But um, but there are people who specifically focus on public health policy that work to implement changes in policy specifically to help um, those who are being disparaged. There's actually a letter going around now that should be submitted soon um, from a lot of physicians that work with African-American communities, just pointing out the fact that we knew that this was coming. We knew that there would be health disparities. Here's what we've seen so far, and why isn't anybody doing anything about it? Oh, wow. So when you first started off, you said that epidemiologists knew this was coming. So, I mean, how does that, how does that work? How do, how do, how do you predict uh, that a pandemic will come? Is it like when you predict like a hundred year flood or like a hundred year earthquake or like a, a, a I don't know, a hundred year hurricane? Uh, there's different statistical models that we use. So we try to estimate um, how, how infectious a disease might be. And then we calculate in things like um, like air travel, train travel, and um, and the age of the current population. And then we can build models, a variety of either statistical models or spatial models that tell us if this disease were, if somebody had the disease and it were to infect three people each day, this is how fast it would spread. Whereas if somebody had a disease that only infected one person a day, this is how fast it might spread. So it's just a variety of different statistical models. And I think here recently, a lot of media outlets have been producing a lot of charts and figures to try to help the lay public understand how coronavirus spread. Um, But epidemiologists put those together a long time ago, which is probably why it was so easy for the media to release them uh, soon into the pandemic, because they were already put together. Okay. So also, Brandon, now, now that it's been spreading and it's, you know, it's everywhere, uh, I heard some talk about uh, where Sanjay Gupta on CNN was talking about how it was not evolving at a rapid pace, like the coronavirus itself was not evolving at a rapid pace. So that a vaccine or a therapeutic would be able to treat the, treat the, treat the virus. And so I guess my question is based off obviously a movie. And so I'm thinking about uh, uh, Contagion. Mm-hmm. Right. So where it was animal transmitted, it was very deadly and it was through contact. It was also through like coughing and sneezing like this virus is. And then it became airborne and, uh, 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 you know, and then it like, you know, it became like something that was, uh, you know, very widespread. Like, you know, it took it, mm-hmm. it affected. It was only like concentrated in one neighborhood or one city or whatever. But like, can you speak to what, what he's what, what he's means by. The, the speed of the evolution of the virus and it's not evolving. Right. So, um, so thank you for that question. It's a good question. So the fear with a virus of any kind is that, right, it'll acquire mutations that will confer it some kind of different function and worse function. Maybe the virus will get worse during the course of an epidemic as it gets passes from person to person. And the reason, mm-hmm. the, the, the source of that fear is that uh, coronavirus, like a lot of viruses, it's an RNA virus, meaning its genome is made out of RNA. And RNA viruses tend to make a lot of mutations when they replicate. Mm-hmm. So this virus is acquiring a lot of mutations. HIV is also an RNA virus. Influenza is an RNA virus. Ebola is an RNA virus. A lot of emerging infections are RNA viruses. And we think that's because they make so many mistakes and are likely to kind of land on a solution to being able to infect uh, these new hosts. 
Now that said, this is where influenza provides a good compare contrast to SARS-CoV-2. Influenza actually mutates at a higher rate than SARS-CoV-2. It has a smaller genome, right? And it has these multiple ways of shuffling its genome. So influenza is a really, really, really adaptable uh, virus that does all these things, which is why we need a new shot every flu season. Now, when you think about the flu, when's the last time you needed more than one shot in a season, right? I mean, you know, really, I mean, it, lately it hasn't happened at all. And that's because despite of how, how fast it mutates, generally speaking, the flu that you get or that, that circulates early in the flu season is more or less the same one that functions later in the flu season. And so if you have a shot for that version early in the season, you do a pretty good job at fighting off all the other versions. Meaning even though the virus is mutating all season, and even though it is picking up mutations all season, it's still fundamentally still the flu virus. Bringing that over to right, SARS-CoV-2 and the, you know, this coronavirus that we're dealing with, yes, it mutates. Yes, it's already picking up mutations. So if you lined up the genome of the virus in Denmark, that's going to look different than the virus in New York City. There's going to be some substitutions. But there's no reason for us to believe right now that those are fundamentally different viruses. We just think that mm-hmm. – we just understand that viruses just pick up changes, and most of those changes – don't mean anything for the phenotype of the virus or the disease that manifests in human beings. And so that's why that clarification had to be made because people might see the viral sequences in different settings and go, Oh no, there are multiple strains. There's been a lot of really bad media about this. There's eight strains of virus. No, there's not eight strains of virus. That's not, that's not even correct. That's not even very scientific language. Strain is not really a scientific term. That's just kind of a common Mm -hmm. term we use. So right now, there's no evidence that there's like active evolution going on in human beings and that this has anything to do with the differences in disease that we see in different settings. Okay, great. So let's let's uh, I kind of want to go back to this hospitalizations, because this seems to be uh, the 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 crux of the matter, like the serious part that if it spreads too quickly, you know, we have some people who they say are asymptomatic, and you can please speak to that if you have any information about asymptomatic people. Uh, but if you do have the symptoms which require you to be hospitalized, it seems to me that being admitted into the hospital, uh, your chances of being the virus go down significantly. And if you have to be uh, put on a ventilator, which uh, if, if anyone can uh, speak to like what like what that means, I think people when they hear ventilator. They think it's just, oh, it just puts some air in your lungs. But, you know, it's, it's a pretty invasive procedure. And uh, I've, I've seen reports that say, like, once a person is put on a ventilator, that their chances of coming off the ventilator are like 20 percent or something like that. You have a, a 20 percent chance of coming off the ventilator. Um, so talking about, I guess, from you know a virus perspective, what puts you in the hospital, but also the public health perspective as to why, you know, wh- like why we don't have what they call uh, protective gear, ventilators, you know, staff and things like that. If, if we've been planning for something like this, why we don't have the stuff we need to like, you know, to get people masks and to get to put people on ventilators if they need to be put on ventilators. Well, I think the biggest issue is that we haven't been planning for, or at least we tried, we knew it was coming and, and public health professionals planned for it. But I don't think that the healthcare system as a whole planned for it. So um, when you think about the healthcare system in the United States, 
and I'm no socialist, but the healthcare system is a little broken as it is. And if you don't have enough hospital beds to put people in and you end up putting them on cots, that puts them at an increased risk for other infections in itself. Even being on a ventilator, being on a ventilator puts you at increased risk for other hospital-based infections uh, in itself. And it is very invasive. Like a ventilator is not something that just helps you breathe by forcing air in and out. It's actually forcing your lungs to move move to help you breathe. So one of my colleagues is working on a study now to see if clinicians are even giving people the option of not being on a ventilator. Because as you stated, it's very invasive. And people should have the choice to say, you know what, I'm going to take my chances and try to keep breathing on my own. The whole purpose of a ventilator is to uh, give your lungs a bit of a rest so that they can heal if they've been damaged. Uh, from coronavirus, but uh, still that should be a choice that's made by the patient that has the coronavirus. And similarly in the black community, um, they tend to do whatever the doctor says they're supposed to do. I, I mm -hmm. kind of fuss at my relatives all the time when they say, you know, I have a cough and I call my doctor and he sent me some antibiotics and I'm saying, well, did he test to see if you had a bacterial infection? It might be a virus. They don't care. They just do whatever the doctor tells them to do. And that shouldn't always be the case. But true enough, ventilators have been uh, very helpful for a lot of people. So I won't knock them. I'm just saying that, yes, they're invasive. It's not a minor procedure. Uh, I, guess, I guess my yeah. next question. Oh, go ahead. So. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, just to clear, just to clear, I mean, just just so we make sure the, re the listeners understand, I mean, if someone has compromised lung function from this, they need to be admitted into the hospital and put on a ventilator. That's so that that is that absolutely must happen. So even though I think I think I think that that is a I think by the time you've reached that point, the disease has progressed quite far. But you're almost guaranteed to die without that. That's why that's that is that's that's what the competition and the fuss and the argument, you know, the fuss between you know the number of ventilators in the states. It, it the, the, the disease, particularly at an advanced stage, causes such an aggressive uh, pneumonia that it'll essentially shut off your breathing and you you'll essentially choke wherever you are. So the idea is a ventilator, you know, is 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 the last hope, and people have recovered because of it. So um, mm -hmm. so just so people know. Ventilators certainly come with their costs, but I mean, if you suspect that one has this type of disease and it's progressing, um, you know, going to a going going to get, see some help and, and getting on a ventilator is is oftentimes the last resort. Oh, as a, what, yeah, but I, I guess think the, one of the biggest issues with that, however, is that at least within the African American community, they don't even get admitted until it's that serious, and they shouldn't have had to wait until it got that serious totally. to start with. Totally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's that's totally it, right. Are you? Are, are, uh, we were just talking about the different, uh, uh, I guess, like genetic changes that the virus goes through. Are those changes the reasons that some people could walk around asymptomatic? Some people could just stay home with a headache and a slight cough. Some people could stay home with slightly more severe symptoms. I, I saw once one report where a person said that you know every time they coughed, it was like very very painful, and then some people have to be hospitalized and, and put on a ventilator. Is that because of the different strains of the viruses or that has something to do with our biology and ecology or whatever? No. The, the, so the signal we're seeing now, I think the unusual signal from SARS-CoV-2 is the age distribution. And I think unlike, I think a lot of, a lot of viral infections like influenza have what we call U distribution where you have high 
kind of uh, case fatality rates for young, young, young human beings, you know, infants and toddlers and young children and high mm-hmm. case fatality rates for elderly folks. I think what um, what this disease is different is that it just goes up with age, essentially. The case fatality rates just rise with age. Um, and so that so that's the number one risk factor kind of essentially across the border has been age. The number one, like was mentioned earlier, is kind of these comorbidities uh, the, uh, next to the age. So that is just a function. So what is what is age a proxy for? So age is oftentimes a proxy for compromised immunity. So in fact, older folks mm-hmm. are kind of at a, at a risk for a lot of infections because they don't fight infections off. Number one. Um, and it's also for lung damage. So individuals with bad lungs in general, so that, you know, uh, kind of have a, have a, have a harder time with the disease because there's a more rapid decline into lung failure from a serious viral pneumonia. Um, so no, I don't need to invoke differences in the virus to explain that. I can, I can explain mm-hmm. that by a lot of the factors that we talked about comorbidities. We talked about all these interesting things that are, that are, that can explain those outcomes and not nothing different about the virus itself. Mm. So I guess my I guess my next question will be looking at New York City, which is like the epicenter for this for this virus. Um, and, you know, it's New York City. Right. They have all these major universities, uh, you know, from uh, up and down, even all the way into um, New Jersey to, 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 to Princeton, you know, and I know that New York City, there still is racial segregation. Right. There still is racial segregation in New York City. Um is there any thoughts to how we're still seeing racial disparities in these urban centers? Because I can understand how someone can say, well, if you live in the Black Belt in Conecuh County or you follow something in Alabama where there's a community health center and not a hospital, there are a lot. I can see how someone can say, OK, well, there's that that two room building cannot handle 15 covid patients. But New York City has a lot of hospitals. Right. So. How, how is it that we're still seeing these discrepancies in a place like New York City? Is it, as you're saying, Aisha, that black people aren't getting admitted to it's too late? Is it uh, the fact that even though that community, you know, this black community, they're not in the sweet tea belt, are they still holding uh, or, or they still have disparities in the hypertension, diabetes and chronic kidney disease in New York? Uh, is it is it is this a function of just, you know, uh, um, some type of social function or, you know, or what? Like, why why are we still seeing these disparities in places like Detroit and, you know, L.A. and, you know, these major epicenters that have major hospitals, right, that have, you know, uh, uh, resources? Um, I think when you when you think about those big cities, they're too heavily congested. That's part of the issue in itself. So that's one of the reasons why it spread so quickly in New York City. Everybody's kind of living on top of each other. On top of that, if you're in a low-income area and your only mode of transportation is public transportation, buses and trains, then every time you get on a bus or a train, you are, uh, you're opening yourself to potential infection. Um, so that's part of the problem there. Additionally, um, when you think about the fact that COVID is a respiratory disease, if you're living in, say, a low-quality housing and your air quality is already poor, whether it be due to high air pollution or mold in the ceilings and the walls, if your lung function is already not that great because of those issues, it increases the risk of severe symptoms uh, from COVID. But uh, was part of your question, why are the rates still higher there? 
Yeah, my, my question would be, because if, if you lived in a place that had a closed rural hospital or community health center or something, I can see how uh, that area could not uh, cope with a lot of ICU beds and they don't have the ventilators and things like that. But New York City, with these major hospitals and these major universities, you know, that these hospitals are research universities, research hospitals. How how is it I can how is it that when blacks go in, they're not coming out like like whites are coming out because they're going into the same they're not going to the same hospitals they're not going to the same health systems, I should say. Yeah. So part of it is that they're probably not going to the same hospitals. Um, the, your ability to be seen at a higher quality hospital is highly dependent on the type of insurance you have, whether that be private or public insurance. If you have to go and sit at the health mm-hmm. department versus going to a private hospital where you're seen quicker, uh, where you're not in a, in a waiting room that's as crowded, um, that helps in itself. But also, uh, kind of as I mentioned earlier, those Black patients may have gone to a doctor previously and they said, you know what, it might just be something mild like a cold. Let's wait and see. Uh, if it gets worse, come back. And then when they come back, there are more people. And, and again, the healthcare system is, is just kind of broken in itself. But especially with low-income residents, when you show up somewhere and say or let it be known that you don't have insurance, um, that makes it it makes it hard to, to be seen quicker. Even if you're seen, you might be seen after the people that they know that they can get payment for, which is very, very unfortunate, but it's just the way that the U.S. healthcare system uh, works. And even if you don't have insurance and they do see you and you get put on the ventilator and as a black person, you come out and you're COVID free and you heal up and you do better, you'll still get slapped with that healthcare bill later on. So that's another thing that often keeps black people from going to the hospital is not wanting to deal with that potential uh, hospital bill later on. But, you know, if you're feeling bad and you think that it's something serious, you shouldn't wait. You should go. And the most important thing is that you advocate for yourself. If somebody says, no, it's all right, just come back later. uh, You don't you don't have to act um, uncivil, but you do have to say, you know, this is very serious. I don't want to die. I need to see someone, please. Um, But, yeah, you just have to advocate even though it's going to be expensive, yeah. So, and, and I guess we'll talk about expense. So in, in your, your your perspective, because I was thinking politically, states that expanded Medicaid versus states that didn't expand Medicaid, but obviously that's negated if and when the governor or whatever municipality puts in stay-in-place orders. So if you got Medicaid expansion, that's that's great. But if the governor or city does not put in a stay-at-home stay, stay order, it spreads you know, it doesn't matter. Still going to overwhelm the system. But I guess uh, I was speaking uh, about getting care. Uh, would, would you think there will be differences uh, in states that expanded Medicaid versus states that didn't? If they, if they, uh, uh, all, all things remain the same, that they ex- extended stay-at-home orders at the same time. So, like, uh, the only difference being in the state uh, would be that one had Medicaid and one didn't. Because sounds like what you're saying is that if you got Medicaid, you still ain't getting into uh, uh, what's that hospital in, in, in uh, Harvard Hospital, Brigham, Brigham and Women's. Oh yeah, you still Brigham like, Women's. You still, yeah, you still like you still not getting in there with no Medicaid. That's what it's like. 
Well, you know, um, the numbers have already shown that states that have expanded Medicaid uh, do seem to fare better as far as uh, the disparities. They have fewer disparities if they did expand med Medicaid. So, uh, yeah, you make a good point there. But even then, you yeah, you might not get to, to Brigham. Not everybody takes that Medicaid. They should. <laughs> But they, yeah. but they don't. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I guess mean, I mean, you talked, you, you spoke earlier about uh, passing it through these like particles or whatever, and I'm not sure what what that means. Those like part air particles. Like, do do we just breathe it out? And also, okay. So what is a particle? How do we put particles out there? And also transitioning from that. What is, what is a test about? Like, how do you, how do you test? What, what are you testing when you test to see if you have it? And also, I'm just probably putting too much into this. But also, what is the difference between, because they're talking about, okay, we're going to have a vaccine like the flu. We're going to have a flu shot for, for coronavirus. But they're also saying that if people had it and got over it, we're going to do something with their antibodies or whatever. Is that also to produce a, 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 vi a vaccine or is that to produce a therapeutic to treat people uh, that have the COVID-19? I'll speak to the, uh, the droplets. So, um, when someone coughs or they sneeze, or even if they breathe really deeply. So there's been uh, one model that was done, I guess a week or two ago, where they tried to model if there were 60 people in a choir and, and maybe three of them had coronavirus just from singing loudly, the droplets that come out of your mouth when you sing, you could spread coronavirus that way. I know you've spoken to someone before and you know, say it, don't spray it. Like sometimes people just spit yeah. when they talk. <laughs> so <laughs> those droplets, those droplets can, can spread coronavirus. But the biggest threat is the coughs and the sneezes. They travel further, which is why people have been telling, uh, telling you to socially distance by standing at least six feet away from the person that's next to you. And in all honesty, I prefer people staying that far away from me at all times. But it's nice that now there's a standard telling people to, to stay away from, from folks because that's the estimated uh, length of space that you need to keep those droplets from landing somewhere on you or specifically in your mouth or up your nose or in your eyes. So if it it, it is... So sneezing and coughing both spread it, but the coronavirus is the, the symptom for coronavirus is the coughing. It's like the hacking. Right. It's just the virus trying to trying to spread itself. That's what viruses like to do. They like to spread. It's like a game. So, now, so Brandon, what Brandon would probably be the best yeah. to respond to your questions about the vaccine. Yeah. So that's what I was yeah. going to go. So, yeah, mm -hmm. go ahead. Yeah. Um, so so there's a lot of kind of so I think there's there's two, kind of two big conversations that are going on about immunity with regards to SARS-CoV-2. Right. One of them involves a vaccine conversation. One of them involves involves a conversation about whether or not people who have it can get it again. Um, and, and there are they, I think these conversations are linked in some way. So it looks like right now we that the virus is highly immunogenic, which means it stimulates a very, very aggressive immune response in people. Um, and that's kind of good news for both reasons. A, if it's immunogenic, that makes us confident that we can engineer a vaccine that will stimulate the immune system 
and therefore render the body able to fight the infection off at a later point. And that's what you need in a vaccine. And number two, because the virus is so immunogenic, we think that it will leave a lasting kind of long term T cell, as we call it, uh, memory T cells in uh, in people who've had the disease and confer long term immunity. So uh, Dr. Fauci the other day said he spoke to that. He said, uh, you know, that we don't really know because, again, this is a young disease. We haven't had anybody mm-hmm. that's had it for a year yet. <laughs> so, so the first data on how long people have been recovered are just coming in. Um, so we we are confident that because of the immune response that, you know, we can we, that a vaccine is a reasonable thing. We don't know. And we'll have to see if it's safe. We'll have to see. We have, we'll have to see these things. These things will be or to be determined. But I think the recovery issue is important because, you know, in Germany, you might have heard there's one of the big things we're trying to figure out now in terms of testing. That's another thing you asked about. And that's actually quite rela- that's related to the immunity issue. The way we, we test really up until now and, and still now and then really for the next for the foreseeable future is uh, kind of a PCR test that detects the genetic material of the virus. Right. That's mm-hmm. we, and, and, and that's the way we kind of test the virus right now. And in combination with symptoms. And, and that's how we can, you know, that's how we can tell people have elite have it or have some version of it or have have had it in the past. What a serological test would do, that would be different. That would test for antibodies in the bloodstream. That's much, much different. Antibodies in the bloodstream are a signal of uh, that you have had it in the past, currently or in the past at some point. So you could have had it weeks ago or months ago. You very well might have antibodies in your bloodstream for it. Now, that's really, really important because you can identify people who are perfectly fine conceivably, but had the disease in the past. Germany is talking about using a serological test to give people a certificate that says, I had the disease, I have recovered, and I had antibodies. They want to introduce that as a way to reintroduce people into the workforce. Think about it. So the idea is I can go back to work because I've had the disease. I can't spread it. I'm not going to get it again. Um, which is a really, really kind of interesting and provocative idea. So, um, so no, we yeah, are. Yeah. The Germany's known for putting patches on people's arms. Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, it's not too far afield. Yeah, yeah go ahead. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. That, that's that's all. Okay, so when you when you when you're saying okay, so it sounds like you're saying with the uh, I guess the vaccine, it could either be like a like a polo shot you get one time, or it could be uh, we get a coronavirus shot every year like a flu shot. Is that, is that what I'm hearing? That's right. It could be. I mean, I think so. That's actually, I'm glad you brought up like, you know, polio. Polio is a, a large DNA virus. And so it doesn't mutate so fast. And so, uh, um, and so because of that, we, one shot does the job, um, you know, whereas kind of for, for influenza, you need a different one, you know, every, you need, you need another one every season because of the rate at which, uh, the flu virus changes. Now we already I already told you that you know we already talked about how SARS-CoV-2 doesn't mutate as fast as influenza, but it still mutates reasonably fast. So it's hard to predict right now. It really depends on how much lasting immunity it gives you to the world of available coronaviruses. We still don't know if all the diversity that we see really, really matters. We know that season to season, the flu that you see is different and the body will not do an effective job at fighting it off, which is why you need a new one every season. We're not in a position now to be able to say very, very clearly that there'll be a seasonal uh, 
SARS-CoV-2 uh, vaccine. Um, the hope is that, you know, may, my, you know, the best guess based on the fact that it mutates less than influenza is that maybe it'll be one of these every few year things that maybe you need it once every five years or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I guess uh, round it out from from because, you know, a lot, a lot of African-Americans um, work in like service industries. Uh, I know a lot of the talk about why African-Americans have been getting this disease more so than whites is that we do work in, we are bus drivers. We are driving subways, cabs, Ubers. We are in like serving people's food and, you know, cleaning, cleaning houses and rooms. And so these service industry jobs. And so those are the jobs that are kind of keeping us running right now. Right. So like the, the people who are delivering groceries, who are, you know, takeout delivery people, these, these people who are out in the, out in the trenches, uh, disproportionately in whatever, depending on where you live, right? Not here in Kansas, they're not disproportionately African-American, but depending on where you live, disproportionately African-American. So what would be your suggestions for those African-Americans or those black people who actually have to go to work, right? Who are essential employees, who actually have to go to work because they were talking in New York, there's so many firefighters, so many police, so many EMTs uh, have gotten this disease. And if it's going to be, if it is as even more contagious than the flu, and it's la- and it's on the the stainless steel, the boxes or whatever, and, and that people are touching every day to open up and put cans on the shelf so we can eat. Uh, you know, what what would your suggestions be for precautions? Uh, you know, from from your perspectives. Well, I mean, you make a good point. So only about twenty percent of Black people who work are able to work from home. As you mentioned, yeah, they're the ones that are driving the buses, they're driving the Ubers. They're still at the restaurant cooking in the kitchen, uh, especially people, the custodians. I think a lot of people discount the importance mm-hmm. of having a custodial staff at a hospital. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever been to the to the hospital, a lot of that custodial staff is African-American. So they're definitely at a greater risk of exposure uh, for coronavirus and um When I think about the suggestions that I make to people, the first suggestion I would like to make is that people stop wearing gloves. I get so annoyed when I see people in a grocery store with gloves and they pick up something they think might be contaminated and then they Mm -hmm. tap on their phones a little bit and they Mm -hmm. play with their earrings. Gloves are for medical professionals and those are the people that need those things now. The best option is just to wash your freaking hands. Wash your hands or get hand sanitizer. Even if you have hand sanitizer, when you get to a sink, wash your hands anyway. So that's the other thing. I think a lot of people rely a little too much on hand sanitizer. I always use an example uh, when I talk to children. I say, if you have some feces on your hands and you put hand sanitizer on your hands and rub it all around your hands. You still have feces on your hands. So just wash your hands. Um, Right now, the government is suggesting that people do wear masks when they go out in public. And that's primarily to protect other people in case you're asymptomatic. But the other thing I've seen is people have these thin masks, like they're sewing their own mask, but it's with a thin material. If you hold it up to the light and you can see through it, then it's probably not the best material. Droplets can still get through it. And a good way to test that is just to take some kind of an aerosol, Lysol or something, and spray it at the back of that mask. And if you see droplets go through the front of the mask, it's not thick enough. Um, 
could you could you treat the mask with Lysol? Could you spray the mask down with Lysol and then put it on? Um, well, if you have a cloth mask, the best thing to do is just to wash it frequently. Um, the mask that my niece has been sewing for our relatives actually has a little pocket so you can stick a filter down in there, but the material itself is very thick. Um, I guess you could spray the mask with Lysol, but if it's cloth, it's absorbent, and that probably wouldn't help as much. Um, I do what's keep the, a can of Lysol now in the trunk, so I can spray down my grocery bags when I put those in the trunk. What is, what is the filter part of the mask that they're making? Um, so what we've been using is the HEPA filters from Vacuum, Vacuum HEPA filters, the thin ones from like the vacuum okay. bags. Mm -hmm. those, those work really well. Um, or some people have been taking those thin surgical masks, like the viral treated surgical mask, and you put that in the little pocket and that helps as well. But again, if the fabric is thick enough, it should be okay. Just check it to make sure droplets don't go through. But I think that the mask that people have been making is um, honestly giving them this false sense of security that they probably what, shouldn't have. What would be a thick enough fabric, you would say like a round the house fabric, like a thick enough fabric, like a t-shirt or like a, um, I don't know, like a, like a bandana? I don't know. Well, if you have you a bandana, it's a good idea to fold it a few times. Like I said, if you hold it up to the light and you can see through it, it's probably not thick enough. That's the same thing mm -hmm. I do with my clothes. I hold my clothes up to the light, and I, if I can see through it, I put on a slip. Same, mm. <laughs> same thing. <laughs> if you can see through it, it's not thick. Just put another lining in there. So you can, a lot of people take the mask, and they sew two sides to it, so then it's thicker. Mm. Instead of just one piece of fabric. So, uh, uh, Brandon, you got any, any uh, what, as a biologist who studies you know, disease. What like what kind of precautions are you taking? Are you leaving the house? Or what kind of precautions are you taking? Are you are you still going to uh, uh, click quickly clack on that supercomputer? Or are you just working from home? Or what's what's going on? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know, my lab's actually working on some some projects on this and some epidemiological modeling and some computational modeling of what will happen. So so uh, so you know, I'm just I, I think everything uh, that Dr. Dickinson just said is is correct uh, as far as I know. I think I don't think we need to be you know, we don't need to be obsessive compulsive. Well, I mean, we need to be obsessive in some sense, but my point is we we can still live somewhat normal lives. We just have to learn to live with this notion that, you know, we're in the midst of a, of a pandemic and your, our behaviors are going to have to change. You're going to be, have to be mindful of, of this in many ways, hopefully in the future. You know, I think what I predict will happen is that our relationship with contagion will change forever. And maybe the notion that wearing masks when you're sick, for example, I think that will be more of a common thing. Um, I think we'll become a lot like you look at the countries that had a good did a good job controlling this thing. And it's for many, 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 many reasons. But almost all of them have a culture of wearing masks. Um, right. Because they're kind of much more aware of contagion than we are. So I think hopefully our culture will change how we think about the possibility of something like this. Yeah, and I'm really hoping that that if nothing else this pandemic encourages people to wash their hands and keep their hands out of their faces in general. Indeed. That's something people should, they should have been doing before the pandemic, but totally. uh, hopefully this encourages it more so. All right, listen, thank you both so much, Dr. Obunu, Dr. Uh, Dickerson. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate your knowledge. 
you're two of the most uh, brilliant people I know personally. But I, yeah, I've been very fortunate to know a lot of smart people. That's where I am. That's how I got where I am today. You know, know a lot of smart people. <laughs> but listen, uh, thank you so much for for doing this. This is the first installment of the podcast. Uh, we're gonna have two, the the, the other three coming uh, behind it. Uh, but again, thank you guys so much. I really appreciate you doing this. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. Quite the pleasure, Dr. Dickinson. Quite the pleasure to meet you and interact with you. Uh, and good, good luck. Good luck, everyone. Be safe.